Welcome to Copcast. I'm Rumbi Chakamba, Associate Editor at DevEx, and I'm headed to Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt for this year's United Nations Climate Conference. In this podcast series, we bring you inside the walls of the Blue Zone for a series of in-depth conversations with climate and development leaders, asking them the big questions. What's really needed to make meaningful progress towards climate goals and what role should the development community play to support that? For the African continent, the red line, I would say, is finance, finance and finance. Climate change represents a major threat to Africa achieving the Sustainable Development Goals. Seven of the ten most vulnerable countries to climate change are in Africa, and estimates show that the cost of adapting to climate change across the continent could reach 50 billion a year by 2050. But that's only if the global temperature increase is kept below 2 degrees Celsius. Ahead of COP27, African states met to set out their priorities and present a unified front at what has been dubbed as the Africa COP. One of their key priorities is loss and damage financing. And this week, a breakthrough agreement was reached, allowing negotiators to debate a potential facility for the first time. Devic senior reporter Sarah Joving sat down with Faten Agad, senior advisor for climate diplomacy at the African Climate Fund, for a breakdown of what the African priorities are and the support that countries need from the global community. Spoiler alert, financing is part of the equation. Thanks so much for joining us for this conversation, Faten. Thanks for having me. There's a lot at stake at this COP because of the extreme weather impacting African countries. Can you provide some examples of the ways in which climate change is impacting countries across the continent? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's as, as said by the IPCC report, um, the African continent is one of the most affected regions currently with, in terms of the impact of, of climate change. We're seeing it manifesting itself through um, in, in different forms, in fact, either uh, floods, as we've recently seen in Nigeria, uh, South Africa, uh, we, uh, it's cyclones, it's droughts in East Africa and the, uh, the Sahel region. Um, that is, in fact, acting a bit as an amplifier, I would say, of, of, of difficult situations on the ground in these countries. We're also seeing it having an effect on, on, on the countries themselves. Um, the African countries spend on average 9% of the GDP um, as we speak on, on responding to some of these, uh, these challenges, either in the form of uh, humanitarian assistance or after these um, uh, climate crises happen um, or uh, through other economic action to, um, uh, to counter uh, disastrous effects. Can you tell us a bit about the Foundation's work? So the African Climate Foundation was established uh, in the midst of the COVID uh, period uh, in uh, late 2020. And the key purpose of the foundation is to uh, provide a, uh, and, and, and support a new narrative um, and the amplification of that narrative for the African continent, um, which basically um, uh, places emphasis on the development climate nexus. If one looks at the African continent, it's not just a matter of the environment. The, 
uh, ability of the continent to respond in a, in, in, in a just way um, to climate change require a more holistic perspective that takes into account the development trajectory of our countries. So in the lead up to COP, uh, African nations have worked to create a unified position on what they want out of the dis these discussions. Can you talk a bit about kind of what this list of demands include? So for the African continent, the red line, I would say, is um, finance, finance and finance. <laughs> um, it is finance for uh, loss and damage, as, as has been um, uh, quite visible, I think, in the international reporting. Um, it's, it's finance for adaptation in particular and a strong push for a, a doubling at least of adaptation finance, but not just the quantity, but also the quality through which the adaptation finance is, is landing on the continent. It's also a way um, of finance for, for the transition uh, generally. We have had the South Africa Just Transition deal announced in Glasgow last year. And in the lead up to COP, which countries have kind of taken on a leadership role in formalizing this continental position on climate and kind of how have these discussions evolved? Um, for, for this particular COP, I think perhaps before, because the, the asks were so common uh, across the continent, that there was a very natural, I would say, convergence of, of the agenda. Um, it, um, we do see um, the way the negotiations and the process of defining these common African positions is structured is rather clear in the African continent. You, you have a um, an African group of negotiators, you have uh, uh, above that a, uh, an African uh, ministers, uh, uh, a group that gives the orientation and above that the heads of states that also then have a role in, in providing those orientations. And so in, in that sense, those leaders of those groups uh, uh, from from uh, Zambia, which is currently heading the African Group of Negotiators, to uh, Kenya, which is heading the uh, Heads of States platform, to uh, others such as Senegal, for instance, who also played an important role. The COP27 presidency itself, um, by trying to find uh, ways that led to the inclusion eventually of of the issue of loss and damage on the agenda. Um, so I think different different countries really across the region, depending on the mandate given to them, uh, have played the role. And what has been the African Union's role and, and what role are they playing over the next two weeks in the discussions? Um, a very good question. I think the African Union um, uh, Commission, I assume, that's, that's what you're asking for, uh, about, is a uh, has a support function if I can put it that way I think we we need to remember that in these negotiations not just in climate but uh, uh, you know in in different areas that in the African context the negotiations are led by sovereign member states and it's there where the man, the mandate lies and so the role of our regional organizations is a supportive role in terms of uh, providing the technical assistance, for instance, in terms of mobilizing the necessary uh, support, but also in terms of amplifying some of these diplomatic messages. Um, as we've seen, for instance, recently in the uh, adaptation summit uh, or the uh, uh, adaptation meetings to finance adaptation, particularly in Africa, 
that took place in, in, in Rotterdam a few months ago, where again the African Union Commission there played the role of this amplifier of messages, if I can put it that way. And why do you think the international system is failing to deliver on adaptation finance? I think one of the challenges and one of the questions I think we need to, uh, to, to put more squarely on the table is the fact that we have uh, delegated this question of adaptation finance to development aid, essentially. <laughs> and, and we're in a situation where increasingly uh, countries are not in a position to meet their uh, uh, development aid uh, requirements. Uh, you know, we still speak of the 0.7% of uh, official development assistance. And, and, and even that is, is, is a moving target um, where countries, as we've seen recently with the UK, but not only with the UK, also with others, where they are basically um, reallocating uh, climate finance um, to, uh, you know, to, to buy weapons, for instance, to support Ukraine. Um, and that's highly problematic. So it makes development aid highly unpredictable and therefore uh, adaptation finance highly unpredictable. And so I think we need to look at all the ways and that's why the discussion on the reforms of the international financial system to provide much more financial space and, and free up more resources within this international finance system becomes extremely critical. Um, it will allow us to, to, to get away a bit from these this, uh, limitations that official development assistance brings. But there's also another elephant in the room, which is the geopolitical competition and this finger pointing on who should be uh, uh, responsible for the provision of this, um, of this uh, uh, adaptation finance. Um, and I think that's, that's not an easy, there's no easy way to resolve the geopolitics. Um, and so finding a more international uh, consensus around this becomes, uh, becomes critical. And you had mentioned quality investments. Um, what, what would you say are kind of some of the smartest investments in the adaptation space? Um, and what would you like to see more of in the coming years in African nations? I think one of the challenges uh, of, of uh, adaptation finance at the moment is, is how it's being dispersed. Um, one, there's a quantity issue, as we said, um, but it's also the manner in which it is dispersed. It's the pressure that is put on all pressure. It's the requirements on the countries um, in terms of uh, uh, standards, let's say, for the plans. Uh, that makes it very difficult for these resources to trickle down to the country level and capacity support for the countries um, to, to be able to uh, develop plans uh, that meet the expectations and the standards put by international uh, funds established for this purpose is also not forthcoming. And so we're in a situation where uh, countries need, develop, uh, need adaptation finance. And the plans that they're putting on the table are, you know, there's a pushback for, because they're not seen as um, meeting a particular standard. The support on, you know, getting the countries to meet the standards is not coming. And therefore we're not seeing this, this trickle down effect. But so that's more on the, on the quality on how the, of, of the trickle down of, of, of the money. Um, but having said that, I think there are some 
um, some innovations. Uh, uh, I mean, if I take the African continent, there are in some innovations that are either led by communities themselves, initiatives of individuals, for instance, around the uh, recovery of, of wetlands um, in, in, in some areas. Um, we're seeing countries themselves, for instance, also looking at approaches to um, uh, to, to, to create or, or to facilitate uh, a data provision, for instance, through international partnerships. We ourselves as an African Climate Foundation, for instance, we're partnering with, with, with Microsoft and uh, an announcement was just made, for instance, to, to avail AI technology, avail uh, data including through satellites um, as open source to be able to uh, to, to guide through a, a data approach uh, a new innovative adaptation approaches in the area of agriculture for instance and, and others um, so there there are creative ways being found um, either at a at a community level or through these kind of partnerships but certainly more is needed Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devx.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. There has been a major push to get loss and damage on the agenda at this top. Um, you guys had put out a, a briefing yesterday um, saying that the parties agreed to the loss and damage discussion but would focus on cooperation and facilitation but not on liability or compensation. What's the significance of that? Um, I think it depends how you look at it. Um, our take is that um, it is a positive first step. Um, and, and, and for those who have worked in negotiations and perhaps including our own listeners, uh, we know that negotiations are not a zero-sum game. And, and sometimes you need an opening by putting something on the agenda um, to be able to at least start a conversation. So in, in, in my opinion, um, the addition of the item, despite the major limitations on it, is a, a very positive step, I think, and a clear deliverable of, of, of this COP. Now, the question of compensation, I think the bottom line is, will there be resources coming to support the countries and the scale of those resources? I think that's the bottom line. What label you put on it is always subject to negotiations because some countries might not want to have a uh, to carry full liability as a sovereign country but at the same time we need to make sure that this doesn't only boil down to the question of insurance which is highly problematic for African countries insurances in terms of scope do not cover enough issues uh, they they tend not to actually uh, allow countries to respond to loss and damage and so I think through the current language there is a halfway that has been met and I think both parties can try to to meet halfway and then hopefully we can build on this agenda 
before this COP to try and find an appropriate mechanism that responds to the needs that fills the very huge and important gaps that we see in terms of the current state of loss and damage finance, um, but uh, caters for the concerns of, of, of some countries uh, on, on the liability question. And what form do you think uh, a finance facility on loss and damage should take? Um, I think what's important is to move beyond the pure discussion on insurance um, for several reasons. Um, one, insurance is highly costly for African countries and so it's very unfair to, uh, to, to put the burden on these countries. I mean, even if it's subsidized, if, if, the, if the cost of their insurance is subsidized, it remains a liability that is carried by countries. Um, plus, they do not cover in terms of scope, they're not attractive. And so, to me, what a mechanism needs to look like is um, is, is a uh, one that takes into account uh, both the immediate effect, but also the, the slow onsetting effects of, of climate change. I think the latter is not seriously uh, uh, covered at the moment. Um, it needs to be a mechanism that um, allows resources to be accessed in a flexible and especially a fast way if a country is sitting in a you know in a, a flood situation we can't tell the country it's going to take you six months to have access to those finances and so we, it needs to be a, a fast response mechanism really as well uh, for these countries to 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 respond um, and, and 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 last but but not least it needs to um, to move beyond the um, the limitations perhaps that we see now um, in terms of um, uh, limiting what can be covered what cannot be covered uh, and, and and really take the uh, demand of the countries as your as your starting point. So, kind of in the meantime, um, there is green climate finance available, um, but one of the challenges is that there is a lot of bureaucracy involved in accessing these funds. Uh, so, I recently wrote a piece on fragile states and kind of the challenges they're facing in accessing um, funding from like the Green Climate Fund. Uh, what would you say kind of needs to happen in the in the coming years to, to make that more accessible? I think the the question of of what's called fragile states, I think, is is, is a very important one. Um, but I would argue, without without wanting to dilute the question on 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 so-called fragile states, but to say that. For many of these countries and, and others generally in, in, in the developing world, um, it is about uh, it's about adaptation finance essentially, yeah? which is not forthcoming. Um, it's about the flexibility of, of, of that finance, but it's also about at the end of the day building resilience, right? Um, Building economic resilience, uh, building you know options in terms of creating opportunities, because particularly in these countries, climate creates and accentuates and acts really as an amplifier of pre-existing conflict, essentially. Um, and so, for us to be able to, uh, to 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 basically mitigate the risk of 
conflict even flaring up even more. We need to be uh, much more creative. Um, and again, I mean, this question of how fragile states access financing is not peculiar to the climate debate. It's, it's one that has been there for, you know, for as long as the discussion on official development assistance has been there. Um, and, and hence, again, to go back to my point earlier that we, we need to move again beyond this logic of, de of official development assistance. We need to look at building economic resilience for these countries because climate is really an external shock uh, for many of these countries it's, uh, and, and, and it has its repercussions. So by focusing and, and shifting the discussion a bit more on uh, post-conflict reconstruction, uh, which is essentially an, a socio-economic agenda, uh, I think in itself can act as a as a as a pushback or cushion really uh, to the effect of uh, that climate might uh, might have on these countries. And can you explain uh, what just transition means and how that's playing out in South Africa? Well, the just transition concept is is an interesting one. So we had. Uh, uh, a couple of months ago, in September, in Cape Town, actually, we, we uh, as a foundation, we gathered uh, African and, and, and all the Global South uh, uh, countries, um, preparing just transition deals as, as we know them. And what we noticed is that how each one defines just transition is interesting because, you know, it's just transition about the right of a country to use its fossil fuels. It's just transition about um, you know, about your finance, etc. But what we found is that there's a common denominator, which is to make sure that uh, countries do not pay the price of something they were not necessarily responsible for causing. Um, and, and, and it has a very strong uh, socioeconomic base. It's, it's about ensuring that your uh, population uh, still has jobs, that decommissioning your coal, pl uh, uh, coal, fire, uh, uh, coal plants does not mean that a lot of people in your mining industry uh, don't have jobs and that you have less electricity and we already have a huge energy access on the co uh, issue on the continent that you're not penalizing uh, uh, you know, a, huge, a huge proportion of the African continent. Um, so it's really about the kind of opportunities you create uh, without, um, without uh, uh, a reversal in terms of the socioeconomic gains that the countries have, have seen uh, uh, recently. And I think what's also important is to recognize that from the perspective of a lot of these countries, what is seen as climate action by the rest of the world, and again, let me take the case of, of the EU, but I understand the US is, is discussing the same, um, questions such as the, the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, for instance, which is hailed in, you know, by the climate community and, and, and Europe as a very positive climate action, is in fact seen by the Global South as, as a, a penalty, in fact. Um, and, 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 and that is not climate justice. And so we need to recognize that there is a local dimension in terms of uh, your socioeconomic needs, but there's also an international dimension in terms of how a climate justice manifests itself between the global, uh, or, or, or between the industrialized countries and the others. 
and a lot of African countries uh, do want to use natural gas as a bridge fuel as they make their transition to renewable energy. What are your thoughts on that? Because there are campaigners here that say no more fossil fuel investments. I think our um, we recently did a very interesting modeling exercise um, looking at different scenarios and their impact on African countries. And what we found is that um, we, we need to look at countries in uh, through we need uh, there are different kinds of countries on the African continent. You have the mature producers, um, which are those that already have the infrastructure. They don't need new investments. Um, maybe if the investment is needed is minor just to scale up existing production. Um, you do have the new producers that already just started investing. And, and you do have the ones that still need to put investments. And the risk, and, and we really look for us, it's a risk of stranded assets in particular, the risk between these three categories is very different, and which means that uh, the impact of, of using or not of your, your, your gas in particular would differ depending on where you sit in these categories. So if you are a country such as, uh, you know, that, that still has to, uh, to, to, to develop the infrastructure, Essentially, in the next 20 years, uh, 10 to 20 years, your assets will be worth 60% less. Um, if you are a mature producer, the risk is very different. I mean, it, it's almost minimal. Um, what, what you're doing then is how are you recovering, how are you uh, smartly designing and, and the, the, uh, or using the revenue from the current windfall, if I can put it that way, of, of prices? How are you using that to ensure your transition? So your challenge there is how to use transition your economy from a fossil fuel dependent country. And a lot of the, the established gas producing countries in Africa are dependent, their economy is largely dependent on fossil fuels. There your focus is how do you use your current resources to transition. If you are a, a one that still has to, to, to invest, um, our, our take is that you, you have to be very careful because essentially the risk of stranded assets is huge and if you are, if a country is also using its own budget, um, you're basically redirecting resources from other areas that are important for, for your development um, to invest them in assets that may be worth much less in the next uh, couple of decades. Thank you so much for, for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Copcast. We'll be publishing episodes every day throughout COP27. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with others you think would be interested in it. You can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have some feedback about this episode that you want to share or are at COP and want to let us know what we should be covering, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at devix and at rumbichakamba underscore, or you can drop us an email at podcast at devix.com. 